morning. Turn to Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4, last book of the Old Testament. We're going to look at the last paragraph of the last book. The order of books in the Bible is not inspired, but traditionally there's been two orders. One, what we have here where Malachi closes the Old Testament, uh, and another one where one of the historical books closes it. But in every version, every uh, order, Jewish or Christian, Malachi is the last of the prophets, and he closes the prophecy. And so what we're seeing here is the last words of the last prophecy before Jesus comes, before the New Testament. So read with me, chapter 4, verse 4. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Uh, We're always interested in what people have to say at the end, last words. And this isn't so much last words as parting words before they come back. So I think the most famous parting words come from the... uh, Poet Arnold Schwarzenegger, (laughs) I'll be back. What is that? I'll be back. It's a promise and a warning. That's why I remember it. It's a very pointed way of saying, I'm going to come back, and if you're with me, you're going to look for it, and if you're not with me, I'm coming for you. But it's the idea of the one thing you want someone to remember while you're gone. Uh, MacArthur, the general, told the Philippines when he was leaving, he said, I shall return. Why do you tell him that? Well, this was World War II and things weren't looking good. It was a promise of comfort, but not for the enemy, who he would also return for. So that's what's happening here. This is the last thing the nation of Israel would hear for 400 years before the New Testament. For 400 years, they would have no new prophecy, no word from God. And this is what they were to end with. This is what was read during the Passover, and back till today, during the Jewish Passover, they'll read this portion of Scripture because they're still waiting for something. But when we look at it, We see something about what God wanted his people to know while they waited for him to return. So what do we see here? Two things, the law and the prophets, which kind of sums up the Old Testament. In fact, it's referred to that, I think, by Jesus, who said, the law and the prophets. This is God's message to his people. Two aspects, law and prophets. And so we're going to look at that, but also, what does it mean for us who live after the law and the prophets? So the law. 
The last thing they, the last command given to them. You see, there's only one command in this passage. There's two sections, law and prophets, but only one command. The command is, remember the law of Moses. God wanted his people to remember one thing, the law. For 400 years, they were to remember this. So the question arises, what's the big deal about the law? If it's so important to put it at the very end, what is it? I'm not sure there's a bigger question for Bible-believing Christians than what is the law? What are we supposed to do with it? But here we're going to see something about how to view God's word, which applies to the whole Bible, but specifically here, he says, remember the law of Moses. What's the nature of this law? We understand the word law means sort of a rule, but what is this law of Moses? He explains, lest you think it's man-made, he says, which I commanded him and Horeb. The source of the law determines how you think about it. If I told you that it's against the law in Afghanistan to drive on this side of the road, you couldn't care less, could you? Who cares what the law is in another country? What I want to know is, what's the law in my country? Who gives the law? You ever been part of a homeowner's association? And because of who's giving the law, you're like, ah, you can say it's the law, but I'm going to mow my grass at three and a half inches. And I, try and stop me. Versus a law of sort of the government that we see, it, we treat it differently. So the source of the law determines how you view the law. So what's the source of this law? It's divine. He says, the law which I commanded. This isn't just a law. This is the law that came, the only law that came from heaven. Divine origin. So when we look at the Bible, and the law here basically refers to the, the, the first five books of the Old Testament where Moses is giving commands. How should we see that? It's a mistake, a great mistake, to see it as just the law of Moses. Sort of that was Israel's law back then. Because it's not just Israel's law, it's the law from God's own mouth. The creator of all laws, the creator of the law of nature, the law of government, the law of human nature, when he speaks about law, we listen. He defines reality. And so he says, I commanded this, and that's why you should listen to it. First Peter talks about this. He said, no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. This is important because when he says, I commanded, he's saying, Moses didn't command you. I commanded you. And they say, but, but it was Moses who told us. And he's like, he was just the vessel. So the word there, when it says they were moved by the Holy Spirit, imagine a boat in a river. Is the boat moving? Yes. But who's deciding where the boat goes? The river's moving it. So Moses delivered the law just like a boat moves downriver. But you don't say the boat was moving itself. The boat wasn't deciding where it went. The river decides. So Moses may have given the law, 
but it was God who decided what was said. That means when we read the Bible, the law, we are reading God's word. The divine origin of the scriptures, I think sometimes we, we accept it and move on. But if God is the creator of heaven and earth, and he speaks, then those words reveal to us what heaven and earth are. What is justice? What did God say? What is mercy? What did God say? And so we base everything on the Bible because of this reason. It's God's word. And we can believe it, but we can't just believe it. We have to trust it. We have to lean on it. We have to acknowledge that we don't just believe the Bible because it's true. We don't believe it just because it's true. Many things are true. Your science textbook may be true, but it's not from God. The Bible is true because it's from God. And its origin shows us how we should treat it. So when he says, remember the law of Moses, he explains why. Because I commanded it. Because it's from God. Its divine origin makes it different from every other book in the world. You can't treat the Bible like everything else. Because no other book was given by God. From God's mouth to our ear. This is why he said this at the end. He says, this is what I want you to remember. Because you're not going to get any more of this for 400 years. So remember what you've got and where it came from. Remember that I spoke to you. And so it's authoritative. Cyril of Jerusalem, who wrote about 1,800 years ago, which is important. We're not making this up in the 20th century. This is not a product of Western enlightenment. This is not fundamentalism producing doctrine, which is the going theory right now in the world, is that fundamentalism and American Christianity produced this doctrine of inspiration and authority of Scripture. But we look back at, through all of the church, they've always believed what the Bible says right here. So Cyril, who wrote about 350 in Jerusalem, not even the least of the divine and holy mysteries of the faith ought to be handed down without the divine Scriptures. Do not simply give faith to me speaking these things to you, except you have the proof of what I say from the divine scriptures. For the security and preservation of our faith are not supported by ingenuity of speech, but by the proofs of the divine scriptures. Amen. He was simply reading the Bible and quoting it. So when we believe what the Bible says, we are in a long tradition, thousands of years, of people believing the same thing. God gave us the Bible, therefore it's our authority. The only thing that can have that kind of authority is what's from God. So, some faiths believe that tradition has the same authority as Scripture. Millions of Christians believe this. But here's the problem. Did the tradition come from God's mouth? I see no evidence. In fact, they'll use a scripture to support their tradition, being from God's mouth, which takes us right back to the scripture. So what we believe is what the Bible teaches is that God's word comes from God's mouth. Therefore, it's our highest authority and nothing else comes equal to it because nothing else came from God. That creates unity. And that's what Israel is supposed to unify around, the divine scriptures. But these scriptures given to Moses were not sort of these abstract spiritual ideas. Notice what he says. 
Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Now, Horeb is just Mount Sinai. Why did God mention the location of the law? Right? Like, this is what he wants them to remember. The last thing he wants them to remember, he mentions some random mountain in the middle of nowhere. That's what Horeb means. It means wasteland. Why is that important? This is a profound truth for us. God's word does not come to us abstractly. It always comes at a specific point in history. We have a historical faith. We don't have a mystical faith that just operates in the spiritual world. We have a faith that operates in the physical world. Just like here. He says, I gave you the law, the eternal, spiritual, supernatural, divine law, at a certain place in time. Remember that. And when God tells you to remember something, it must mean it's necessary. So how did the law come to us? How does God's word come to us? It comes through a man. It comes through Moses. How did the Bible get to us? See, this is a problem a lot of people have. Man wrote the Bible. That's partly true. Just like the law came from Moses. You see, if you take the Bible and just say, well, it's just God's word with no human involvement, you undermine the Bible. You undermine God's own word. So the Bible comes through man. That's how God has chosen to work. He's chosen to use people to bring his word to other people. And so the Bible is written down by man. And it's written in a specific time and place. This is where the Old Testament goes. When people interpret the Old Testament, they go wrong. They forget that the law was given to Moses at Sinai. And they just hear God's law. Preachers across America are preaching and teaching that you should just view the Old Testament simply as God's law. But the Bible teaches that it's God's law at Horeb for all Israel. That's what God said. It was given at a specific time, a specific place, to a specific people. We're not adding to Scripture here. We're reading Scripture. So you have to say that it's God's law through Moses to Israel at Sinai. And if you take those words out, you can't understand the Old Testament. You'll remember the law in the wrong way. So the law was given to a specific people at a specific time, which means it must be interpreted through their eyes, the people it was given to. Now, the New Testament helps us understand that, but it was never given to anybody else other than who it was said it was given to. We don't get to add people into the scripture. It was given to all of Israel. That's it. It wasn't given to all of Israel and America. Now, that's controversial. He didn't say, remember the law of Moses, which I commanded him at Sinai for all Israel and on the lawn of the courthouse. wasn't given to America. It wasn't meant to be on the courthouse. Does that mean that I don't think we should listen to the law or the Ten Commandments? You just have to remember that it was given to Israel, was not given to America. So the huge controversy of whether we should have the Ten Commandments on the lawn of the courthouse is misunderstanding the purpose of the Ten Commandments. It's not saying they're not important or valuable or inspired or true or from God. It's just saying, read them the way they were given. 
So he says, remember this law. What does it mean to remember? So when we say remember, it's just sort of, okay, I remember. Do you remember when you ever have a history test? Remember these details. And so you just memorize them so that you can put them down on a test and then that's it. That's not what remember means here. Remember means what God said earlier when he said, I remembered my covenant. He goes, I will remember you. When God remembers something, he does something about it. So that's what he means here. He says, remember the law of Moses. In other words, do something. Obey. When he tells them to remember, he tells them to obey. Because isn't that what a law requires? Obedience? So the law of God requires obedience. So he says, obey completely. The statutes and judgments. How much were they supposed to remember? All of it. How much were they supposed to obey? All of it, which applies to us. If you're going to keep the law, how much do you keep? All of it. They didn't get to choose, and we don't get to choose. So that ask yourself, do you keep the law of Moses? You don't keep all of it, do you? Not unless you're sacrificing goats and sheep out back. So we have to apply this principle that God does not give caveats to his law. He expects obedience. He expects complete obedience. Remember means to prioritize. This all flows from the nature of the law. If it's from God, then what priority should it have? The same priority God has. So God's word has the same priority as God. It's our connection to God. So, we, so they, were meant, they were called to prioritize it. Now, we ask ourselves, do we have God's word? What priority should it have? But see, we really need to ask ourselves, not what do we think it should have, but what do we actually do with it? So simply look at your day yesterday and ask yourself where God's word was. Not what you believed about it, but what you did with it. You see, remember doesn't mean acknowledge the truth. It means obey. It means to practice. It means do something with it. So if you say God's word is the most important thing, but then you don't do anything with it, you're undermining your own beliefs. God's word is the most important thing in the world because it's from God. Therefore, I'm not going to read it. You wouldn't say that, would you? But we do it. God's word is the most important thing, so when I go to church, I don't really prioritize it. I want something else. We wouldn't say it, but we do it. We prioritize things other than God's word, whether it be music or style or all the other good things in the world. We make them more important than God's word. And that's why he's saying, remember. He's saying, you're going to forget. You're going to be tempted to put other things in God's place. You're going to be tempted to put good things over Scripture. You've got to get to work. You've got to do things. You don't have time to read Scripture. You believe it's true. It'll be there when you get back, right? That's how you know what you really believe, what you do with it. You see, the core of what God is telling them is that they're to love God. And if you love God, what will you do? You'll love God's Word. It's exactly what the psalmist says. Oh, how I love your law. 
It is my meditation all the day. See the parallel? I love your law, therefore I think about it all day. Do you love God's law? Do you think about it all day? I have not departed from your judgments. Why? For you yourself have taught me. You see the connection? Why didn't he depart from them? Because he knew who they were from. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. We don't think of the law this way. We think of the law as something we need to be saved from. That it's this bad thing that God's got to get rid of. Save us from the law. That's not true. God doesn't save us from the law. He saves us from ourselves. He saves us from his judgment. The law is good. It's only because we're bad that we don't see it as good. Do we love the commandments of God? Do we love to hear him tell us what to do? Or do we just accept it? Well, God, the Bible says it, so I guess we've got to do it. That's not what Psalmist said. He said, how sweet are your words to my taste. Why? Because he loved God. If you love God, you'll love to listen to God, even if he's commanding you to do something. That's the goal of this passage. He's saying to them, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Therefore, remember my words. Meditate on them day and night. Love them. Think about them. God's words are a gift to us. They're not a burden on us. God, in his grace, reached out to us and spoke to us. The law is grace. The commandments are judgment, but the act of giving us the law is an act of grace. It's God saying, let me tell you what I think. You ever ask somebody, tell me what you think, and they won't? You're really frustrated? God doesn't do that to us. When we ask, I wonder what God thinks, he says, I'll tell you exactly what I think. And we should love God for that. And we should love God's word for that. But he doesn't end on the law. He says, remember the law. There's the command. Here's what you need to do until the Messiah comes. For the next 400 years, while you're waiting for the Messiah, the day of the Lord, here's what you must do. Remember the law. But then he switches. Verse 5. Behold. Behold is a signal. It means pay attention. Something's different. Pay attention. This is important. It's different than what you were just hearing. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. So he says, remember the law, but then he goes to the prophets. Just like in the Old Testament, you see the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses telling them what to do. Then you have all these books where this guy shows up and starts telling people things. And they usually end up killing him. The prophet shows up and says, thus says the Lord. What's the difference between the law and the prophets? Why is he promising Elijah the prophet, not Moses? So what's the role of a prophet? You see, they're supposed to remember the law, but look forward to the prophet. So there's a long history of prophets in the Bible. What are they? First of all, they're messengers. It's obvious, isn't it? In other words, no one really cares what Malachi has to say. They only care what Malachi is bringing from somebody else. So Malachi doesn't have a word. Malachi has God's word. When you say prophet, you mean he's bringing God's word to you. It means at least that much. 
Prophets don't give wisdom. They don't give opinions. They don't come up with truth. They don't observe truth. They bring truth from God to man. He's a divine messenger. So this Elijah, this prophet, and all the prophets got something from God and are bringing it to the people. That's the basic role of a prophet. So they're to look for something. They're to look for someone, Elijah the prophet, who will bring them a message from God. You see what he's setting up for? He's saying, you've got a word, but there's going to be silence, but then the silence will be broken, and a new prophet will show up. And what's a prophet do? They bring God's message, but they don't just bring a random message any more than Moses brought one. They connect what God said with what the people are doing. Malachi didn't just give a message for all people of all time with no context. And we've been going through Malachi, haven't you seen it? He said, you've been doing this thing. You specifically, you right there, in your context, here's what you're doing, and here's what God said, and they don't match. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy will be done on earth. Why? Because it's not being done on earth. That's what a prophet says. A prophet shows up on earth and says, I've heard from heaven, and these don't match. What's happening on earth is not matching what's in heaven. He connects God and man, but he connects them to show that they're not the same, that there's something wrong, there's a break. He applies the law. He doesn't bring new law. Prophets don't bring anything new. They take the law that was given. So Malachi, all through the book of Malachi, he says, the law says, care for the poor. But you are not caring for the poor. He's reminding them, here's what the Bible says, and here's what you're doing. And they're not the same. So the preacher functions in some ways as a prophet. I don't simply say, remember the law. I say, you're not reading the law. There's the application. A prophet applies. A prophet gets in your face. A prophet gets killed. What's the role of a prophet? Whatever he does, he ends up dead for it. And you only end up dead when you confront people. No one cares about the guy who never confronts them. No one cares about the guy who just minds his own business. They only care about the people who confront. So a prophet confronts. They apply. All the prophets in the Old Testament, that's what they did. They said, God spoke, you heard him, you agreed, and now you're not doing it. So when he says the coming of a prophet, it must indicate something. God is expecting something. What's he expecting? That despite the words he said, remember the law, He's expecting them to fail. Prophets only show up when there's a failure, when there's a problem. So when he says, remember the law, but look for a prophet, he's giving them a warning. He's saying, here's what you should do, but you're not going to. This is in the law itself, Leviticus chapter 26. Speaking to Israel, if their uncircumcised hearts are humbled, and they accept their guilt, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, my covenant with Isaac, my covenant with Abraham. I will remember. I will remember the land. In the law, he said, if their uncircumcised hearts, in other words, what they actually feel and believe, 
are humbled and they accept their guilt. God has no illusions of what's going to happen with people. He knows. He tells them, your hearts will fail. He predicts heart failure. He says to them, here's what you're supposed to do. Here's what's good, but here's what you're actually going to do. Why? Because you don't want to do what God says. There's a heart failure. There's there's an internal problem. The problem's not with the law. The problem's not with the prophet. The problem's not with the message. The problem's with the hearer. When they hear the good news, when they hear the truth, their hearts push it away. And so what he's saying here is, I will send you Elijah because your uncircumcised hearts. In other words, you kept the rules, but your heart wasn't changed. You have guilt, and a prophet will tell you that. And a prophet did tell him that. Elijah turns out to be John the Baptist. What happened to John the Baptist? He said, I'm not just here to tell you good news. I'm here to tell you the truth. Herod, you're breaking the law. How did John the Baptist get to speak to Herod? Because Herod was a Jew, and the law says you can't marry someone that you're related to. And Herod did. And so John the Baptist, like a good prophet, said, here's what the law said. Here's what you're doing. It doesn't match. God's unhappy. And Herod killed him. Do you believe the Bible? Do you speak the truth? Do you ever confront people with the truth? Do you ever have conflicts based on sin? Or do you simply avoid anything that makes people uncomfortable? Some of us here are conflict-averse. We avoid confrontation. We would never get our heads cut off if we had our way. We could never be a prophet if we had things the way we wanted them to because we'd never have a conflict. We would speak the truth, you know, but just keep it to ourselves. God is saying, here's what you should look for, Elijah the prophet, which gives us a model of who God sends to his people. Confrontational, law-abiding messengers. To do what? To warn of the consequences. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. At the end, lest I come and strike you, strike the earth with a curse. See, the prophet's not there to be confrontational for its own sake. Some of us don't like confrontation, but some of us do like confrontation. That's not a prophet's job, just to be confrontational. He's there to warn of consequences. He says, before I come back and destroy everybody, I'm sending a prophet to warn you. See, the prophet's a gift to say, turn or face God. Change or get what's coming to you. The great and dreadful day of the Lord. But you notice there's more to what a prophet has to say. He has bad news, but he has good news. I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts. God knew their hearts would fail. God knows our hearts will fail. And he knows we can't do anything about it. So he sends somebody to turn our hearts for us. This is a key doctrine in the Bible. You don't have the ability to change your own heart. You are sinful. You are weak. God knows this. He doesn't say, remember the law of Moses and change your heart. 
He says, remember the law of Moses and I'll send someone to change your heart. John the Baptist, full of the Holy Spirit from the womb. Why did he need the Holy Spirit? Because he was going to do something that no man could do. He was going to fix the problem. He was going to get to the heart of the matter. So God remind, the prophet reminds him of what God said to do, obey the law, love me, but he also promises something. All through the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, the prophets say, remember when God saved you. Remember that. Remember the law. Remember the salvation from Egypt, from Assyria, from your sin. Remember it, but also look forward to something. Prophets always bring reminders and promises. A prophet promises something. He reminds you of what will happen. See, a prophet, all of history is laid out before them. Because they come from God, there is no past and future. It's all history. But when they come to a people, they remind them of what has happened for them and what will happen, and they're the same. The authority of what will happen for God is the same as what has happened for us. You can't change the past, can you? Well, for God, you can't change his promises. You can't change the future. Not in a fatalistic way, but in a faithful and beneficial way. So the prophet is going to come and he's going to change the hearts. A future salvation. Deuteronomy promised this. And the Lord your God, remember he said, your uncircumcised hearts, if you will humble yourself, guess what they wouldn't do? They wouldn't humble themselves. So in Deuteronomy, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. You see what just happened there? He told them to love him and to repent and change their hearts. Then he promises to do it for them. That's the gospel. God demands what is just from us, and we refuse to give it to him. So he comes down and he makes us into new people so that we will love him. That's a promise of a prophet. He goes, I will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. In other words, here, children and fathers, it's a social order because it was a social nation at that time. He was going to set things right. And how do you set things right? By fixing the heart. Not by fixing the law. Not by fixing your circumstances. By fixing your heart. God promises to fix his people's heart. The one thing that, this is the end. All through the Old Testament, what do you see? The people are saved from disaster and turn back. They're saved from Egypt and they turn back to Egypt. They're saved from Assyria and they turn back. They're saved from Baal and they turn back to Baal. That's the history of the Old Testament. The law never could give them what they needed, which was a new heart. So God promises, one day in the future, I'll give you a new heart. But we don't live in this age. Law and prophets were for Israel. They promised something new. So how do we live after this? How do we live after the Old Testament? As members of the New Covenant, not the Old Covenant, how do we look back at this? Three things. The law is still a teacher. It's still God's word. It's still divine. It's still perfect. It still teaches the same things. So when we go back and we look at the whole Old Testament that begins in Genesis and ends in Malachi, what do we see? 
We see a story, and we have to read the same story that they read. We have to walk down the same road that God took Israel down. Now, we're after this, but we have to walk down the same road. And what does the law and the prophets teach? God created the world. Man is a sinner. When you read the Old Testament, you cannot escape the fact that God is in charge and that people are not. You cannot escape the fact that God is good and people are not. That's the law. That's the prophet. It's to show that humanity has never changed and that God has never changed. And so you walk the road from Adam to Malachi and you realize that you're in the same position. God demands things. And you can't do them. God is perfect, and we are not. So what does the law and the prophets have for us? To reveal to us who we are. We are the same as Israel. Our hearts are the same. Until we see what God says about us, we don't know who we are. And the Old Testament shows that. You see, the Old Testament doesn't end with the Old Testament. It's the beginning of something, but you don't know where it ends until you know where it begins. The disciples couldn't get this. Remember the passage we read at the beginning? And after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John were under the law. They were Jews in the Old Covenant. You realize that? They were circumcised, took the Passover, they kept the law. They were required to keep the law, just like Jesus was required to keep it. He was born of a woman, born under the law. He took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up into a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them. The same two people that God talks about in this passage. The law of Moses and the prophet Elijah. There they are. And Peter reveals his heart. Well-meaning, but wrong. He said, Lord, it is good for us to be here. Well, that's true. Just like the Old Testament is good for us to read and listen to and observe and honor. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And there's the problem. They wanted to keep the Old Testament and the New Testament. They wanted to keep the Old Covenant with the New Covenant. They wanted Jesus and Moses and Elijah. They said, we want no change. We just want an addition. So we have Moses and Elijah, and now we also want Jesus to be added to those. He said, three tabernacles equal you, Moses, and Elijah, and that's what we're going to do. We're going to worship, we're going to follow, we're going to listen to you, Moses, and Elijah. What does God have to say about this? You see how God makes it very clear what we're supposed to do? While he was still speaking, God interrupts. He literally tells Peter, Peter, I can't let you finish. You're so wrong. You're so wrong. You cannot finish. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. Suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. What about Moses and Elijah? When Jesus shows up, Moses and Elijah fade to the background. You don't build three tabernacles for them. You build one tabernacle for Jesus. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus touched them and said, Arise, do not be afraid. When they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one 
but Jesus. There's the gospel. Yeah, listen to Moses and Elijah. They were from God. They brought God's word to his people. But when you look up, it's only Jesus. Moses and Elijah, they're gone. They had their time. They brought God's word. And they can teach us about what it was like back then and what God expects from everyone. But in the end, you've got to let go of the Old Testament and get a hold of Jesus. What people are trying to do is trying to hold on to the Old Testament and hold on to Jesus. But when they looked up, they saw no one but Jesus only. What are you holding on to? The law, the prophets, or Jesus? The law and the prophets lead you to Jesus. Galatians 1, therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. You see, if you haven't been brought to Christ, you need the Old Testament to show you how bad you are. But you're not bound to the Old Testament once you're under Christ. The Old Testament brings us to Christ. And that is a continual thing. You know you forget about Jesus a lot? The Old Testament can you remind you about him. It tells you who God is. It tells you who you are. And it makes you say, now I need Jesus again. So we never get rid of the Old Testament. We never say it's not important anymore. It's always important to do the same thing it was meant to do. Bring us to Jesus. That's why we preach through the Old Testament. To get to the same place. Jesus. John Huss, who was a, uh, a Czech theologian about 600 years ago, he was, the, he was in charge of the University of Prague. He said, I believe the Bible is the authority, that Jesus is the authority. Well, the Roman Catholic Church says the Pope is in charge with Jesus. John Huss said, no, that's not true, because I see the Pope doing a lot of bad things, like everybody, and I don't see Jesus doing anything wrong. Well, he started talking it this way. Well, in 1415, that wasn't the way you talked. And so they told him, we're having a big council. All the churches are getting together in the whole Roman Empire, the whole of Europe. You come. Guarantee you safe passage. You come and we'll talk about it. And so he, like many people, believed what he was told by the church. And he showed up and they threw him in prison. And they said, we didn't really mean that safe passage because... You're telling people to listen to God, not us. And that's not going to work. So they took him, and they put him on a stake. And they said, recant, or we'll burn you. Now where's Moses and Elijah? Now where's the Old Testament? So what did John Huss say at the very end? What was he willing to be burned for? I appeal to Jesus Christ, the only judge who is almighty and completely just. In his hands I plead my cause, not on the basis of false witnesses and erring counsels, but on truth and justice. Moses and Elijah will not give you that. The old covenant will not give you that. Only Jesus can give you that. Only Jesus can walk you up to the end and give you strength to finish. John Huss was killed. That's what the promise is. Jesus will be with you to the end. And sometimes he's not going to rescue you from the end. You'll go through the fire. John Huss was burned. 
See, the prophets warn us two things, God's judgment or man's judgment. You can't escape. If you escape God's judgment through Christ, you're free. You're saved. But what's going to happen? You're going to face man's judgment, just like John Huss did. The question is, is Jesus enough to face everybody? That's what this Bible is. That's what this is telling us. He's saying the law of Moses is good. Obey God's law, but you need someone to tell you about Jesus. Someone to change your heart. Someone to save you from the curse. He says, if you don't listen to the prophet, I will come to the earth with a curse. But if you do listen to the prophet, Jesus saves you. That's what Christianity is. It's seeing how the world really is. It's seeing how bad people are. It's seeing how bad we are. It's seeing that it doesn't always work out. But we also see the future. And the prophet tells us that God saved in the past, he saved then, and he'll save us. Just as sure as he brought them out of Egypt, he'll bring us out. Unless God's changed. Let God be true, and every man a liar. God's past salvation, God's present salvation, and God's future salvation are no different. They all rest on God. God in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That's what changes us. Keeping the law doesn't change us. Trying to obey doesn't change us. Looking to Christ changes us. John Huss died, but a fellow country member from, from what was called Bohemia back then, what we call Czech Republic now, named Peter Chelsicki, led the revival, the Bohemian revival. And he said, here's the application of what John Huss said. We are full of insecurity and perplexity and cannot stand in anything faithfully. The slightest word bows us down, grieves us, crushes us like a hollow reed because we don't listen. He said, this is all because we do not take spiritual strength from him. Not from Moses, not from Elijah, but from Jesus. Through prayer, the recollection of his benevolence, and the expectation of the future reward that is promised to us. Strength from God comes to us in this way. When we think much about his grace, works, promises, and the reward that we should receive through faith. This is how you're going to make it. Whatever your problem is, whether it's being burned at the stake or being talked about at work, here's the answer. You look to what Christ has done for you and what he will do for you, and that will change your heart. That's the only thing that will change your heart, but it will change your heart. Salvation through Christ alone, but salvation. So look to Moses, look to Elijah, but move on to Jesus, and that's where you stay, because that's who will save you. Let's pray.